With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, you might want to hold on to your seat right now because I'm about to throw down some realness that might just give you chills. Um, Did you know that the fashion industry is the number two polluter in the world? Oh, man. Second only to the fossil fuel industry, which is a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Um, And also, the main source of municipal solid waste in the United States are textile goods that people simply throw in the trash. So we're talking about throwing clothes and shoes and bedding and towels, and people are just throwing it in the trash. Sadly, I am very much aware of the realities of this industry, but these numbers never cease to shock me nonetheless. According to the Environment Protection Agency, more than 10 million tons of textile waste was deposited in U.S. landfills alone in 2015. I mean, this is a staggering amount. It's, in, it's insane. <laughs> and, and the number has actually increased five-fold in the last 50 years. Um, in 1960, it is estimated that less than 2 million tons of textiles ended up in landfills. You know, cut to some 50 years later, and now five times that amount in the United States. Wow. But, but this actually pales in comparison to what is currently happening in Asia. Um, In Hong Kong alone, 253 tons of textiles end up in their landfills daily. That's over half of a million pounds every single day. And that is just what is thrown away. That does not include the myriad of other ways in which the industry is polluting the world. Burberry very recently just came under fire for burning unsold products worth an estimated $37 million dollars. Because they did not want the merchandise to go on sale, as this could potentially damage the brand's prestige. So, April, how did we get here? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because that's exactly what we're going to investigate today, plus a whole lot more. Yes, never in the history of our planet has it been as critical to open up public discourse about matters of sustainability within the fashion industry. This is a huge problem, and to be perfectly honest, one that has some pretty easy fixes that each and every one of our listeners can undertake to affect change. And to that end, we are so happy today to be joined in the studio by someone who's doing much, much more than just her own part to disrupt the cycle of waste and pollution that has more or less been inherent to the fashion industry for well over a century. Um, We are joined today by fashion designer and educator Tara St. James to speak about issues of sustainability within the clothing and textile industries in the past, the present, and hopefully how we can course correct in the future. Tara, welcome to the yes, show. Thank Yay. you so much for joining us on Dressed. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. First off, Tara, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you have your own fashion line here in New York, but I also understand that this is not the only stylish hat you wear. That's right. I wear a few hats. Um, of course, being a designer and manufacturer is the first one. So I have a brand called Study New York, which I launched in 2009. Fantastic time to start a brand. (laughs) That would be the height Um, of the recession. (laughs) And the brand is an ethical contemporary women's wear brand that's produced using sustainable materials and production methods. And I work almost exclusively with manufacturers here in the garment district of New York City. 
Um, but I also am an educator, as you mentioned. I teach a course on sustainable textile sourcing at FIT, which I love. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Uh, and then I also work for Pratt Institute in um, the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator, which is an accelerator for independent designers who are working sustainably across a lot of different businesses. So not just fashion, but also toys and tech companies and services and the common thread that they have is sustainability. So I help mentor them there and I also run a sustainable textile library there, which is my passion project. Um, and we have a small production room, so we help with prototyping and development. It's really exciting. Fantastic. Yeah. I want to come visit. Yes, yes you're too. both Field welcome trip. to come visit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to talk lots more about your own work um, with Study New York in just a little bit, um, because Study New York is really some next level effort <laughs> that Aww. you do in, in terms of like making your brand transparent and sustainable. Um, you know, it's hard enough making it in New York as a fashion designer, period, let alone running your own brand um, without all this extra additional labor that goes into ensuring that you're really doing the right thing by not only people, but also the planet. But before we get to that, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about how fashion and issues of sustainability have intersected in the past. Um, I have this really great quote from uh, Morris DeCamp Crawford, who we promised to do an episode on at some point because he's really, he, he was a really badass early 20th century fashion activist, much like yourself, Tara. <laughs> um, but in 1948, um, DeCamp Crawford, he wrote, quote, within a period of not less than a century, a small group of mechanics had changed methods of spinning, weaving, dyeing, and fabric decoration, which had previous history of perhaps 10,000 years. So he is, of course, speaking about the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. Um, so, Tara, I'm hoping that you would maybe speak to the relationship between Mother Earth and the fashion and textile industries prior to the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is really exciting for me to look this far back in history and how sustainability has gotten so far away from us. Um, and of course, one of the things that I'm trying to do is connect designers with what used to be inherent in all production or at-home manufacturing. And oftentimes I'll talk about in the 1950s and 60s, everyone would go home and have their clothing made at home. And so they were really close to the supply chain. They could see their mother or their grandmother sewing or mm -hmm. knitting. And so they understood how things were made, but also the time and effort it took to, to make something. And so mm -hmm. inherently they understood the cost of those goods. But if we go even further back, so never mind the 1950s, we're looking hundreds of years back, the supply chain was so close that people didn't have a choice. So the dyes that were used for dyeing their materials were grown on their land. So there was natural dyes from vegetables or plants. The fiber was also grown within their region because there was no transportation and they didn't, they couldn't afford to import or transport fibers. So the mm -hmm. cotton was grown on their land and people who lived in countries where cotton was grown would wear cotton. Uh, people who lived in countries where the primary fiber was wool would wear mm -hmm. wool. And it was just, it made sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so they didn't really have a choice. And then everything was woven or knit by hand. So it was all inherently either zero waste or minimal waste because the time it took to make something was just really long and labor intensive that you didn't want to waste because it cost you a lot of money to make your clothes. Fast forward a little bit to the Industrial Revolution and that changed everything. So prior to that, 
humanity just had a way of valuing everything that was made at home because it was made for personal use. And we're starting to see a little bit of that come back, but we've come so far away from that idea and that concept that we forget what it's like to make something. Oftentimes, I'm even approached by people who think that it's machines that make our clothes now because of cartoons or videos. And in fact, it's still people. It's still humans at sewing machines who are cutting and sewing the clothes by hand. There are a few machines, um, and some of those are not that far off from the ones that were invented during the Industrial Revolution. They look a little fancier and they work a lot <laughs> faster, um, but they're really very similar to what they were 100 years ago. They're just more efficient, but you still need people to operate those machines. And, and so we're so far away from the idea of making something at home and being able to understand it. And so zero waste has become really the most interesting and intriguing aspect of sustainability for me personally as a designer. One, because I'm a little bit of a textile nerd. I'm a lot. Oh, you're of, good, I'm a lot of You're in good company. Thank yeah. you. I know. <laughs> um, and because I really value the textiles that I seek for my own brand, but also I want to value them because I know how much work and effort has gone into them. One little piece of information that I always find shocking is with the average garment that we wear, it takes up to 80 people to to make that garment wow. across the entire supply chain. So if we start all the way at the fiber level from the farms or the origin of the fiber to the the person that sold it to you. And oftentimes a majority of that supply chain is women. Mm -hmm. And so I take personal interest in that, mm -hmm. being a woman myself and wanting to support women in the industry. Right. Which really makes it all the more incredible when you think of how much of this clothing is being thrown into landfills. Mm -hmm. all, one piece of clothing, 80 people, is an incredible um, thing to consider. So get, just kind of going back to the 19th century when this all began to change. So you can sort of make this blanket statement by saying that prior to the Industrial Revolution, textile production was inherently sustainable. But this all begins to shift in the 19th century. And I'm hoping that you can speak uh, a little bit to the specific inventions which impacted the manner in which textiles and in turn fashion began to be created during this period. Yeah, you could actually say that the Industrial Revolution was the beginning of the end for sustainability in the fashion supply mm -hmm. chain. But at the same time, it democratized fashion. Right. It allowed more people to wear either trends or more affordable clothing. Mm -hmm. So we do have to give it a little bit of credit. Yeah. Um, and technology is technology. It's going. It's inevitable. We're humans. We like to invent things. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, always, like, when it first comes out, for some reason, it always gets vilified. That's right. For, like, <laughs> a little <laughs> to moment. This day. Yeah. Yeah. To this day. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've actually narrowed it down to two of my favorite inventions um, that actually come from a very similar place. So one is the Jacquard loom, uh, which I really love, and that's a, a weaving loom. And actually, it was invented by, I did a little research just for the two of you, <laughs> Joseph Marie Jacquard in 1804. And in fact, he didn't invent the loom, but he invented a series of punch cards, mm -hmm. uh, which were added to a loom in order to be able to manufacture jacquard textiles mm -hmm. more quickly and efficiently. And those punch cards were actually the origin of early computing systems. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We actually talked about this in our Cashmere with a K episode <laughs> about the invention of the jacquard loom. Yeah. yeah. So that was, and still to this day, jacquard looms operate in a very mm -hmm. similar way. 
The other one in works and has a very similar origin story is the whole garment knitting machine, which cool. we actually have one of at the BFDA. They're fascinating machines. Um, they now work with computers, but they also, the origin of the knitting machine was also with punch cards. And I got to see some of those while I was training on these machines in Japan because the machines we have are from a company called Shimaseki. There are only two companies in the whole world that make these whole garment knitting machines. One wow. is Shimaseki in Japan, and the other is Stoll in Germany, which is fascinating that yeah. there's a duo monopoly on the yeah. industry. <laughs> and so those are inherently zero waste. Well, knitting, actually, if you think about knitting by hand, mm -hmm. is zero waste. You take a ball of yarn and you start to knit something, but you're knitting the shape of the sweater. So I think a lot of people understand that philosophy because they've maybe seen knitting at mm -hmm. home or I'm seeing more and more people knitting on the subway, on the subway. Lately, yes. mm -hmm. which is which is great fascinating if you can make the space on the subway yeah. Yeah. <laughs> crocheting is a little bit less space intensive yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah the knitting machine operates in very similar way to humans knitting but they're much bigger machines they're the size of trucks mm -hmm. uh, and they they are equally as noisy um, but they can knit a whole sweater and a fancy cable knit sweater in under an hour. Wow. Um, and you all you have to do is finish off one end of yarn, which is really interesting. So you're reducing the amount of labor that is required, and there's no waste in the production, which is great. The jacquard looms, on the other hand, still require cutting and sewing. Um, but I like that part of it because I come from a pattern-making background, so I want to be really integrated into that part of the process. I read a stat um, that was a little bit staggering about really how much impact the jacquard loom had. Um, it, and it said something about like in the past, um, before the invention of the jacquard loom, a day's worth of weaving for the team of weavers that was working on that particular loom would be about one inch of cloth, you know, from, from selvage to selvage. Mm -hmm. That's what they could t turn out in a day. And then with the invention of the jacquard loom, that exploded to be two feet. So, you know, with all of a sudden, you know, this explosion in the amount of textiles that could be produced, this in turn follows that, that of course, the textile industry would expand. And in this, in turn, created increased um, demand for dyes. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of dyes? Specifically, I guess what I'm getting at is like this transition from natural dyes um, to synthetic synthetic ones, mm -hmm. and some of the environmental impacts mm -hmm. that resulted. Right. So actually, the first reference to synthetic dyes in history books, it goes as far back as 1740, mm. which is a long, substantial amount of time for mm -hmm. synthetics. And the first color to be produced as a synthetic dye, either of you want to hazard a guess? Well, if it was 1740, it wasn't mauve or mauveine. It was no. probably something else. Yeah. Okay. It was indigo. Oh, yeah. interesting. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love the history of indigo and denim in general. Mm -hmm. I actually started out my career in a denim mill and working with jeans. And so I, I understand the history of that and the importance of that. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of, of jeans on the the water supply. Um, but as far as dyes go, 1740 was the origin. And then fast forward to um, the 19th century, 
we had thousands of colors of synthetic dyes available. Mm -hmm. And no one was really paying attention to the impact on our water supply chain because no one was testing. And so one of the most common dyes were called direct acid azo dyes. Um, Even by the name, it sounds toxic. And only in 1996 did Germany as a country decide to ban these dyes. So as a great side effect on the entire industry, because Germany decided to ban Azo dyes, so did the rest of the world. We still, unfortunately, see them today in some countries that try to uh, get around the more expensive acid dyes that are less toxic, but um, it's really hard because you have to test the fabric for them. And by that time, the garment has already been produced and there's very little testing at the end stage. I read a study um, preparing for this episode that talked about um, them actually doing this exact thing, testing for azo dyes, mm. and they tested 141 garments, mm-hmm. um, and two of them came back mm-hmm. positive, both from Zara. Mm. So anyway, just fun fact. They're still out there somewhere. We're not so fun <laughs> no, fact. Yeah. not so fun yeah. fact. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm almost glad or relieved to hear that it was only two out of 140. Yeah, that's true. Could have been higher. It should be lower, but it could have been higher. (laughs) Um, But of course, if we talk about the history of dyes, colors, when they were natural dyes, were really uh, privy to mostly royalty. And Mm -hmm. you talked about mauve and mauveine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So usually colors were very, very pertinent to royalty. And the idea of, um, like we said, democratizing fashion, the idea of synthetic dyes made all colors available to all humans, Mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting to me and very democratic. But at the same time, we didn't realize as humans what impact that was having until only 1996, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess we have to thank Germany for that. (laughs) Thank you, Germany. Germany. Um, And so as a side effect afterwards, what happened was now these dyes are banned worldwide. And so a majority of the industry has now migrated to low impact or fiber reactive dyes, which use less water um, because they don't need to be rinsed as frequently. Uh, And then there's also less of a need for uh, high heat when the dyes are being used. And so that uses less energy as well. Um, And so as an alternative to natural dyes, which also have their downsides because they require a lot of water and natural resources, you still Mm -hmm. have to grow the plants, Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes they're from food supplies, which are better used as food uh, to feed us. (laughs) And so uh, I I prefer to use fiber reactive dyes in my work and uh, think that they're a better alternative, of course. Cool. Yeah. And dyes are, of course, not the only guilty party in fashion here. Uh, I recently read another shocking statistic. This episode is full of them (laughs) about cotton Mm. and the water required to create just one cotton T-shirt is 2,700 liters. So the equivalent of what the average human consumes in two and a half years. And it's even more staggering for blue jeans because to grow the cotton that goes into one pair of jeans requires anywhere from 7,000 to 29,000 liters of water. So that's like anywhere from six and a half to 25 years of water that a human would consume for one pair of jeans. So there really are some hidden impacts behind the fibers selected for the creation of textiles. And can you speak to this in terms of both natural and synthetic fibers? Yes. And just to add to your 
let's call it series of depressing facts. Yeah. <laughs> um, that 2,700 liters of water that you mm-hmm. mentioned is just for the cotton to grow the t-shirt. Wow. So if you look at the entire life cycle of the mm-hmm. t-shirt, includes dyeing, processing the cotton um, after mm-hmm. you're gro- you've grown it. And then what's most impactful is the customer washing and wearing the garment. So an actual statistic for the water used in a normal white cotton t-shirt is upward of 6,000 liters. Wow. So it's more than double. Uh, a lot of that is obviously in the growth phase. But mm-hmm. uh, if we look at the the use phase, which mm-hmm. we often don't as designers, as students, we're not taught to think about customers and how they wash and wear their clothing. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, as you mentioned earlier, it's so hard to be a designer and be successful as a brand that sometimes you you are happy that someone's bought your product. You don't think about what they're doing with it. You certainly don't think about how they dispose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of brands are now starting to tackle that. And that's because there's such an impact at that phase of life. And I'm glad that you brought up t-shirts and jeans because one, they're a ubiquitous yes, uniform yeah. <laughs> for not only Americans, but the entire world mm-hmm. now. And they happen to be two of the most toxic products that we can make. Cotton being, as you mentioned, very water intensive, um, especially the white cotton t-shirt, which requires bleaching, which can be also very toxic. Um, And then jeans, I'll I'll point to a very interesting documentary that uh, we actually showed at the BFDA a couple of years ago called River Blue. And it follows the um, denim industry primarily, and not only the impact that it's had Uh, on the rivers of the world and the water systems of the world, but also the positive things that could be done, which is where I like to focus a lot of my energy is not Mm -hmm. all of these negative facts, even Mm -hmm. though they're important to know, but what can be done. And Mm -hmm. so we're looking at not only how things can be produced better, but how they can be worn in a more, a less impactful way. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my favorite ad campaigns was Nudie Jeans doing uh, a campaign to educate their customers on reducing the amount of times that they wash their jeans. And rather than inform them of all these negative stats, uh, what they did was they just asked them to smell their jeans. And then they said, (laughs) and it was a little bit of a graphic and it was really cute. And it said, does your mom say that you need to wash your jeans? Yes or no. And if the answer was no, it said, okay, well, you could probably wait a little bit longer. And so they were recommending that they wait three to six months to wash their jeans. Yeah. Um, And the idea behind that was Mm -hmm. really to stop their customers from using so much Mm -hmm. water. And hopefully the impact that that would have is they would think about the rest of their clothes and how often they washed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we look at the difference between natural fibers and synthetics. And so while natural fibers use a lot of water, like Mm -hmm. cotton, for example, um, the side effect of synthetic material is really microfibers. Mm -hmm. And you've heard about the islands of plastic Mm -hmm. in our oceans, uh, which a lot of times come from plastic waste that's just thrown on the beach. But also a lot of that is the way we wash our synthetic garments and all these microfibers that come out of the water stream. And And you can't filter them really because they're so small. That's right. right. So they're just going going through the sewer systems Mm -hmm. and eventually whenever those meet up with natural sources of water, Mm -hmm. they're going out into the ocean. Yeah, and they become like a sludge. Mm. So it's actually really a plastic soup. We hear it a lot being referred to as an island, which makes it sound like you could just go and scoop it up and be done with it. But in fact, it's become like a sludgy soup, which is less appealing and much harder to clean up. 
Um, you can actually, Patagonia has released these bags that you can wash your polyester garments in, in order to collect the microfibers. Most people don't know about them, mm -hmm. but it is one way that we're trying to solve that problem. Uh, a lot of the washing machine companies are also trying to solve it by mm. putting in different filters. Cool. And so that's really interesting to see as a solution to that problem. I remember that a few years back that bamboo was kind of being touted as this miracle fiber. Um, not only was it super soft, um, but the fact that it can replenish itself so quickly, it grows insanely quickly. Mm. Um, but my understanding now is that thoughts on this have changed mm. a bit. Will you talk to us about that? Yes, my response to bamboo is, ugh. <laughs> um, bamboo, just like a lot of other things, had a great marketing campaign. And they were touted as the fiber that could cure cancer. And it had all these antimicrobial properties and would just do anything you wanted it to do. And you're right, bamboo does grow really quickly. It doesn't need pesticides, much like hemp which I think is a miracle fiber. Um, and I'm hoping in 10 years, I'm not going to be sitting on another podcast saying, ugh, about hemp. But I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, um, bamboo, unfortunately, uh, is a great tree source or plant source, but it's not a great fiber because of the chemicals that are needed to refine it down to a wearable, soft, smooth fiber. So you can actually find some materials that are made from bamboo that are very much like linen. So it's mm. crunchy and interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels much different to the bamboo that we know to be uh, very smooth and silky. An alternative to bamboo that is much more sustainable would be Tencel or Modal from a company called Lensing, also made from a wood source, but um, is grown in renewable forests. And so they're being very careful about the chemicals that they use to process it. It's still a chemical process, much like the bamboo process, but those chemicals are uh, go through a closed loop system. So they're never put into the water stream. Whereas with a lot of bamboo, I won't say all bamboo because there are some factories that are making it in a closed loop chemical system, but unfortunately, most of them are not. And the other downside to bamboo, we're going back into the negative stats, <laughs> is that it became so popular during this phase of great marketing that industry started clear-cutting virgin forests in order to plant bamboo forests. And when you have a single uh, stream plant like that, you're, you're hurting not only the environment, but the entire supply chain. Mm -hmm. mm. And so that's the downside to bamboo. It is still compostable when you have it made into different types of flooring or reusable packaging, things like that. But as a fiber, I certainly don't recommend it to the brands that I work with. Interesting. Hmm. So all of this, this use of natural resources that go into the creation of fashion becomes especially critical in light of the rise of fast fashion, which began in earnest in the 1990s. And if anyone isn't exactly clear what we mean by fast fashion, we're talking about retailers like H&M, Topshop, Zara, Forever 21, which turn out trendy clothing, which can be had for a very cheap price. So they put out new collections every few weeks in order to quicken trends. And this just entices people to buy more and more. And in countries where fast fashion is readily available, the average consumer buys 60% more clothing than they did 20 years ago. Yeah. And so, Cass, these short-lived trends that you're talking about, um, this is especially important when you think about if the trend is passing quickly and people no longer want these clothes, 
what do they do with them? <laughs> Apparently, they're throwing them in the trash. Apparently. <laughs> um, and combined with the fact that they don't last particularly long, they don't wear um, because of matters of quality, you know, fast fashion has really created this impression in the mind of a lot of consumers that clothing is disposable. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I read a stat that said um, the average woman wears one item of clothing seven times before she discards it. And I'm like, seven times in one week? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but this was not always the case. You know, historically, people bought far less clothing, and they mm-hmm. kept it a, a lot longer. During the 18th and 19th centuries, it was quite common for women to refashion um, dresses or other garments that they had in their wardrobes um, just by changing out the trimmings or the embellishments. Because the fabric itself was so valuable, sometimes they would refashion an old dress into a new updated silhouette. And they're holding on to the textile because because it was expensive. Um, And these higher quality of textiles in the past really do tend to last longer. You know, when I go vintage shopping, um, kind of how I go through the racks is I just scan really quickly. And when I see something that looks like a quality textile, that's when I stop and mm-hmm. I pull it off the rack exactly. to look at it. Me too. Um, it stands out so yeah. easily. Yeah. It really does. But but this doesn't really happen anymore. I'm, t- I'm talking about these high-quality textiles, unless you're talking about the upper echelons of fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for that reason, the only F word in my house <laughs> is fast fashion. I'm, like, <laughs> constantly yelling at my friends, like, when we're at the beach house and I, like, fold their laundry. And I see it's, like, H&M or whatever. I'm like, whose is this? Mm-hmm. Stop. <laughs> But um, that brings us to an alternative to fast fashion. And Tara, I'm hoping that you will define for us after a sponsor break, (laughs) what is slow fashion? Welcome back. Um, Tara, a few weeks back, you said something to me that I thought was really interesting. You said that slow fashion has a long way to go to catch up to Mm. the slow food movement. So what is slow fashion and how does it relate to the slow food movement? In other words, um, the slow food movement, meaning um, food that is produced using high quality, locally sourced ingredients, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So slow fashion is part of the slow movement overall. So it's very similar to slow food movement. And I think people tend to understand slow food very easily because it's easier to know where your food comes from, or at least to try to understand it. Slow fashion is very much the same. So it's good quality materials, uh, clean production, which means no chemical waste, um, not no excessive water use, and then fair working conditions and pay for the manufacturers. That sounds really simple. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's not the case for a majority of the clothes that we buy. Um, it's also understanding the production cycle and not wearing something for less time than it took to make it. Mm-hmm. And that's counting in how long it took to grow the cotton, which is an entire wow, growing that's season. that's a really interesting perspective when you think of it like Right? That. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it sounds simple, but it's not. Yeah. And But it also includes, slow fashion also includes vintage, right? which is really interesting. And mm-hmm. vintage, for the most part, is made with better quality materials Mm -hmm. and lasts a lot longer. It's also made with better stitching inside because it's made to be worn for a long time. Um, You mentioned seven wears for the average piece of clothing. Uh, One of the most interesting movements that I've seen lately is Livia First 30 wears. Have you heard of this? No. And Mm -hmm. so it's a challenge to 
primarily celebrities, but pretty much anyone who will listen, to wear a garment in different ways at least 30 times. Uh, you think that that's not that hard, but in fact, if we think about the average mm -hmm. seven and most things being under that average, uh, it can be challenging. And part of that is because we don't know how to adjust our clothes anymore. We don't know how to tailor them, mm -hmm. how to change the shape, um, how to adjust the silhouette. And so that's why it's really difficult. Uh, another part of that is transparency. And so understanding the supply chain. And that goes for designers as well as uh, consumers. And actually, I say the word consumer, but I think it's a misnomer in the fashion industry because the idea of consumption is using something until it no longer exists. So you think of consuming food, it goes away. There's a circular supply chain mm -hmm. for food. We don't have to talk about it. <laughs> um, but there's no circular supply chain for fashion. And so we're not really consumers. We're just using things. Right. And then we dispose of them. So we're disposers for the most part in the, in the supply chain of fashion. But you think of one piece of slow, well-made clothing, and that can equate up to five pieces of fast fashion because it'll last that long. And one of the things that my mom always taught me when I was young, because she was an appreciator of good, well-made clothes, uh, was to think of the cost per wear. And right. this is a great strategy that I implement when I shop, which is rarely, but I still do shop, is to calculate how many times you estimate you'll wear something and divide the total cost of that garment by that many times. So if you're going to wear something once because it's super trendy or it falls apart, then that cost per wear is going to be the total cost of that garment. Whereas I have things in my closet that I've owned for 10 or 15 years that I wear maybe not every week, mm -hmm. but regularly. And so that cost per wear has come down to pennies mm -hmm. because I've had it for, for so many years. And I think that's really important to think about because one of the challenges with sustainable fashion is that it's the true cost of, of making that. And it can be expensive, I won't lie, which is why vintage comes in to be such a great solution for right. people. And, and when you say cost, I think we can look at that in two different ways, not only monetary costs, but also human costs. That's right. As well. Absolutely. And so if we're paying all of the workers across the entire supply chain, from farmers to sewers to the dye house, a fair wage, you're inherently going to be incurring higher costs than something that is unethical. Right. And so that's why I think it's unfair for sustainable brands and designers to be labeled as expensive. They're just paying the true cost of that product and they're putting it out on the market, often at a detriment to themselves because they're trying to compete with brands that are not paying the real cost. So it can be really challenging to be a designer and to be um, almost punished for trying to pay a fair wage across, mm -hmm. your, your, mm -hmm. across the board. Mm -hmm. And it would seem to me that many of the issues within slow fashion relate to matters of transparency within the fashion chain. So only 5% of the clothing retailed in the United States currently was manufactured in the United States. That is an incredible number. Mm -hmm. 50 years ago, 90% of clothing for sale in America was made here at home. Mm -hmm. So what implications does this have in terms of fashion's carbon footprint globally and also the ability of brands to monitor how their designs are made up? Right. So there 
And actually, a side note, most of that clothing that was produced for American consumption was right here in New York City. Yeah, mm-hmm. you said you worked in the, you're working in I'm the working garment I'm working in the industry. garment district, which is a lot smaller yeah. than it was 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the factories had to go out of business, sadly. Um, but now there's a resurgence of emerging designers coming back and wanting to work locally. Mm-hmm. One, because it's more efficient. You can have more control over your manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go and visit them to make sure that they're doing things the way you want to. And so that's why I like manufacturing here. Um, You can stop mistakes from being overwhelming. And so sometimes um, the factory has a problem and they'll call you and tell you about it. Rather than having to get on a plane and go halfway across the world, you can jump on the subway and go and see them um, or get on a Skype call and it's the same time of day. So Mm -hmm. that mistake can be quickly repaired Mm -hmm. um, at a much lower cost to both the factory and the designer. Mm -hmm. It's not the case when you're producing overseas, which I did for the first half of my career. So I've Mm -hmm. seen both of the Uh, both of the challenges and benefits of working Mm -hmm. in China or India or Taiwan. Um, And so there's a huge difference between uh, manufacturing here and manufacturing there. Another interesting statistic is that about 20 years ago, over 75% of the production that was being made in China uh, was for export to North America and Europe. And now 75% of the production in China is for local consumption. So Chinese consumption. Hmm. And the reason for that is because there is a growth in the mid-sector, mm-hmm. people with disposable income mm-hmm. or credit who are now able to purchase a lot more. And so that hasn't meant that they've produced less for us. They're still producing the same amount. They're just producing a I lot more. Wow. Right? right. And that's not something that we talk about a lot because mm-hmm. it's so far away. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it's going to become problematic in other developing countries like India, for example, mm-hmm. which will be next. And then the new frontier of manufacturing of Africa. Um, and so we're going to see this happen everywhere. And if there isn't a way to mitigate it, then it's going to become a much bigger problem than it is now. Yeah. It's really hard for me to even grasp how these things are actually manufactured because the amount of people mm. that we discussed, the amount of factories around the world, if you think of just a T-shirt at Target, that one t-shirt exists in however many targets mm-hmm. and however many runs across, mm-hmm. you know, the country. And it was made by somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's one piece of clothing for one brand. So it's really incredible. It is incredible. It's staggering. And uh, we've talked about fast fashion and I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think it's going to be uh, obsolete anytime mm-hmm. soon. But I do think that there are solutions. Um, and one of those solutions is for there to be less of a need for natural resources for the fashion supply chain, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to lower cost goods. At the end of the day, I think we there's still a need globally for lower cost produced garments. I still mm-hmm. think all the people in the supply chain need to be paid a fair wage, and mm-hmm. that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, but the bigger challenge is this need for natural resources, whether it's petroleum or cotton, mm-hmm. uh, which are the two biggest fiber sources, is polyester and cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that we see fast fashion companies starting to take back some of their clothes, so a lot of them have take back programs. You can bring in any garments and dump them in a bin next to the cash at mm-hmm. H&M and get a coupon or something back. Imagine if they were able to take all of the clothes that came back in those bins and make new clothes out of that fiber. And so they didn't have to worry about getting new petroleum, Mm -hmm. new cotton. That would be really innovative. Um, And there's starting to be some research done in Mm -hmm. that realm. 
but we're still at least five to 10 years out from that, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it is when you think about the amount of clothes going to landfill. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about it, that most of the clothes that go to landfill uh, are actually recyclable. And only uh, about 15% of the clothing that we send to landfill is is sent for recycling, Mm -hmm. but 85% of it could potentially be recycled. And so that's very encouraging. It's discouraging knowing that it's not going to the right place, but it's encouraging knowing that there's a possibility for future reuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And that reuse can be in many phases, but I think the most efficient one would be to make new fibers from the old fiber, not cutting up the clothes and trying to redesign it because that's very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you deal with some of these issues within your own work and and what is kind of the ethical platform of Study New York? Mm. Yes. Um, So... The reason I named the brand study was because I really wanted it to be almost like a petri dish for sustainability in fashion. So I wanted to learn about all the different aspects of the production supply chain and how to do it better. And so I started really examining everything that I did from weaving to knitting to dyeing and implementing different sustainable solutions into all levels of that. So my first collection was entirely zero waste, um, which is a pattern making process that not a lot of brands implement. And I did it because I thought it was going to be a real challenge in pattern making. And it was, it still is. (laughs) Uh, I still use a lot of zero waste pattern making in my collection, but not entirely. And if Tara agrees, we will put some images of her zero waste garments up on our Instagram feed. Absolutely. Yes, it's super nerdy. And my high school math teacher would be really proud of me. It (laughs) does require a lot of geometry. There are a lot of zero waste pattern makers out there um, most notably, Timo Riesenen, who is an, a professor at Parsons, um, Holly McQuillan. The two of them wrote a great book together on zero waste pattern making. If anyone's interested in reading it, I'm in it. So that's exciting. <laughs> um, so zero waste is one of the, the main uh, sustainability strategies that I implement in the brand. But one of the bigger ones that had, I think, the most impact on the brand on and on my communication with my customers was transitioning to what I call a uniform collection. And that was where I examined not the production methods and not the fibers because I was already using certified organic materials and linen and hemp uh, and climate beneficial wool, which I've recently added to the collection. But I looked at my business model and how inherently unsustainable doing two to four collections a year was on not only my personal life and um, my creativity and Uh, and the business itself financially, but also on the strain of producing twice a year and completely discarding. And so when we look at the fashion calendar, it's inherently one of the most problematic things to to sustainability because there's such a stress for forcing designers to be creative on calendar and producing now almost eight to 12 times a year. Um, If you look at... I'm like, what the hell is pre-resort? Pre-resort, yeah. Why? (laughs) I can barely understand what (laughs) resort is, to be honest with you. And so I started getting into that speed um, because I had a showroom at the time, and this was 2013, um, so I was four years into the brand. And I realized this was the only time in my life that I'd really had control over a business. And so I was able to change the way the business was done. And so I created what I call a uniform collection. And it started out with just eight of my most popular styles that people tended to gravitate towards. And so I still produce almost all of them to this day. And then I add little capsules to those 
pretty much when I feel like it, but mostly it's uh, supplementing more lightweight summer styles in the summer and then heavier outerwear and, and knitwear in the fall. Um, so it is seasonal and season appropriate, but uh, the rest of the collection is good to not only for the year, but hopefully for much longer. So I still have pieces in my closet that are from that first collection back in 2010. Um, and I still wear them because the fabrics that I choose, I'll admit, are very menswear oriented. That's my background. So I studied mm-hmm. men's tailoring in school. And so I, I gravitate towards the much more neutral grays, whites, browns, taupes, blacks. So it's more neutral, which means you're going to be able to wear it for a lot longer. And then the fabrics are what I like to think of much higher quality um, and will last a lot longer. So that's the biggest impact that I've had. Um, But I've also looked at my manufacturing and I take back all the waste that is produced Mm -hmm. um, from the manufacturing process and we reuse that in other projects. So one of them being uh, what I call the weaving hand sweater. So that is some waste that is made from a dress that I produce in North Carolina with a factory that is worker-owned. So it's the only worker-owned factory in the United States for the garment industry. Um, And they produce a dress for me using a Texas-grown organic cotton that's made in North Carolina. So it's one of the only pieces that I'm really proud of because it's entirely U.S.-grown and made, and that's hard to do. And then all the waste from that, they ship up with the dresses to my studio in New York. We make a new material out of it. And then it's handwoven by a healing arts organization in Brooklyn called Weaving Hand that I've been working with for over five years now. And what's the name of the manufacturer in uh, North Carolina? It's called Opportunity Threads. And I love them. Yeah. And you can actually see all of that on my main label. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I like to do uh, and implement in the brand is full transparency. So not only on the website, but also on every label that I put on the garments is the name of the factory, the name of the mill where the fabric came from, what kind of fabric it is, obviously. So it's not Mm -hmm. just the size and the material, but it's also the name of the sewer. So I ask that all the sewers hand sign the the labels. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting story that goes with that. Um, And the reason I did that is because I wanted to connect the person who was sewing and making the garment to the person that was ultimately going to be wearing it. So the consumer knows it's a real person. Real person, yes. (laughs) Because you see a real signature on this label and it's all of a sudden it jars you out of thinking about machines and you realize that there's this person. But also there's a connection between the sewer who never gets Mm -hmm. to meet the consumer and then that consumer. And so they're really proud of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about me. It's about everybody who's who's part of the supply chain. I mean, I would go and have the farmers sign, but it's really hard to <laughs> have them doing that. Um, so I resigned myself to, to just having the sewers. Yeah. Um, but a little side note on that, it was for the first maybe year that I started doing this with my factory here in, in um, the garment district, uh, the sewers refused to sign the labels because they thought that they were going to be held responsible for any damages on the clothes. Uh, and so they were afraid that it was almost like a QC signature. Uh, and so I finally had to go and explain to them that, no, this is really about, you know, communicating mm-hmm. that you're doing good work. Also, mm-hmm. I've never found damages from yeah. them. So I don't know why they were worried. Um, <laughs> but it, it there was a little bit of a cultural divide yeah, there. And absolutely. I had to go and explain that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand why the clothes kept coming back without the signatures on them. And we had to keep bringing them back on the subway and asking them <laughs> to sign. Um, but that was that was an awakening for me yeah. to, to realize that it wasn't, you know, the way I see things is not always the way everybody is going to see them. That was important. 
Yeah. Hmm. And for them too, I think as, as people who are making and creating things to take, you know, really take pride and to be, you know, you're giving them credit for their creation. Right. Yeah. It's not just my creation. Yeah. If they weren't part of the supply chain, mm-hmm. there would be no clothes. Yeah. Um, there would be some cut fabric on the yeah. floor. <laughs> <laughs> um, it'd be nice fabric, but it still wouldn't be of any use to anybody. So this is really a movement that's happening here. And aside from yourself, can you speak about some of uh, your favorite brands that you believe are also doing good work in this arena? Where can our listeners and myself in April, where can we find sustainable fashion that we can trust? Because there is a lot of, quote unquote, greenwashing out there. Yes. So it's hard for me to narrow down this list because there are so many people that I respect and admire. Um, what's encouraging, though, is I think that there are designers at every budget level. So if we look at local Brooklyn designers, for example, one of my favorites would be Daniel Silverstein, who has mm-hmm. a brand called Zero Waste Daniel. And he collects fabric scraps from local factories here in New York, um, and he makes what he calls re-roll. So he makes new fabric out of old fabric and it looks great. He He's basically patchworking together pieces of waste fabric that would have gone to landfill, but sometimes he'll do really intricate patchwork. So he'll have David Bowie's face on the sweatshirt oh, and wow. it's really affordable and adorable. And I'm, I'm going home and Googling this. Yes. I need to Google all of these brands. So <laughs> yeah. we'll be sure to post them too. Well, some of them are actually more mainstream. So one mm-hmm. of my favorite New York designers would be Yoli Tang, mm-hmm. who has been doing zero waste for a long time and uses really quality fabrics. Um, another you may have heard of is Simiaki. One of my favorites. Um, Margella also does a lot of upcycling. So mm-hmm. some great some great opportunities there. Mara Hoffman, who recently just started talking about their sustainability strategies, but has been doing great work for many, many years. Another company I really like based out of Nashville is called Elizabeth Suzanne. She sells direct to customer, but she's really transparent about her supply chain because she has the factory right in her studio space. And so she employs oh, wow. all of the sewers Every piece is handmade by one person, so it's not a traditional factory setting, um, and you know exactly who's making it, and every piece is made to order. And what's important about that is that they're reducing waste because they're not over-manufacturing, and that's one of the other big problems in the industry is that we speculate on how Mm -hmm. popular styles are going to be and overproduce, and then that stuff just gets Mm -hmm. uh, stuck in a warehouse somewhere, and that's one of the biggest waste problems in the industry. Obviously, the textile waste that's going to landfill is huge, yeah. but even bigger is all of this pre-made garments. You can imagine the cost that goes into this that's just sitting in a warehouse because the color wasn't popular that season mm-hmm. or the fabric didn't hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of speculation. And you think with as smart as we are as human beings and all this technology that we have, we could estimate how things are going to sell. But no, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. humans are humans and we are privy to changes of whim. Um, And so things just don't do well. And so that's one of the biggest issues in the industry that we don't talk about because Mm -hmm. it's hiding in a factory. But those would be my favorite. Mm -hmm. And I really think there's something to be said about re-educating consumers too, which Mm -hmm. we've talked a little bit about. And that, yes, some of these uh, pieces of sustainable clothing are going to be a little more expensive than you're used to buying Mm -hmm. from, say, one of these fast fashion brands, Mm -hmm. but it's going to last that much longer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can really find pride in your garment that you're purchasing. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because at my class at FIT, one of my students was uh, from Brazil 
And when I started talking about fast fashion, she actually put up her hand and said, well, you know, for me, H&M and Zara are luxury um, mm-hmm. because they're actually quite expensive to buy. Mm-hmm. But the difference is they're being purchased as almost luxury items. And mm-hmm. so when they go into uh, H&M or Zara, they're buying things that they're going to be able to wear for a long time, mm-hmm. as opposed to the way we see it here mm-hmm. as disposable items. And it's really interesting to see a different mindset there. Mm-hmm. And I think there are solutions And a lot of that has to do with wear and how you care for your garments and how you empathize with them. And Mm -hmm. empathy is a really important part of sustainability that we don't talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, even thinking about washing your garments, Mm -hmm. I don't think most people would think about that, that washing them is going to actually take away some of the lifespan of that That's right. It's Mm -hmm. really impactful. One of the reasons that microfibers are so bad is not really because of the way the fabric is made, but because of the detergent we use. And so one Mm -hmm. of the biggest things that I tell people um, on how to change their habits is by using a less harsh detergent. We're not working out in the fields so Mm -hmm. much anymore. We don't sweat as much as we used to, except Mm -hmm. when you end up on the one train and it's not air conditioned. Um, I, think, I think this is a recent personal experience. Yes, <laughs> as of maybe half an hour ago. Um, but besides that, we really don't need to wash our clothes as intensely as we do. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, uh, the detergents we're using are really, really aggressive. And they're they're made for much heavier wear. And so just by changing your detergent to uh, a less harmful detergent can, can have a big impact. And buying new, um, Tara, as you mentioned earlier, isn't the only option to have impact. Vintage, vintage, vintage. I've mentioned. You love vintage. Yes, <laughs> I mentioned this before on the show, but um, several years ago, I made the personal decision to really bring pretty much only vintage or new clothing made by designers that I know personally into my wardrobe. And I might just happen to have a study New York jumpsuit. Yes, you do. <laughs> on, the bag on the floor next to me. And you're wearing a fabulous Hawaiian vintage. I you am. Are. I, ha- I, I have a penchant for um, vintage Hawaiian dresses yeah. <laughs> and sneakers. That's my new uniform. Yeah. Speaking of uniforms. <laughs> yeah, and there's so many designers out there who are responsible and sustainable. Uh, I'm actually very excited, you know, to learn about study New York because for many years, my husband went on um, – this journey to only buy American-made, sustainable, ethical goods. And he found so many wonderful brands, but a lot of them were geared towards menswear. I personally buy a lot of secondhand clothing, and I'm always looking for those well-made vintage pieces, of course, because not only are they sustainable, they're guaranteed to be unique. Yes. And, and you stand out. And you you made a point just there, Cass, what you said, because you use the word secondhand and mm-hmm. the word vintage in the same sentence. And the interchangeable use of these terms isn't something that I really thought about a lot until I was reading um, a book that friends of ours wrote, um, Jennifer Farley Gordon and Colleen Hill, their book, Sustainable Fashion, Past, Present, and Future. It's great. I recommend it um, if, if you want to read more about this. But they made a point in the book to say that the moment when when wearing used clothing became fashionable in the 1970s, this terminology that we used shifted from used clothing to vintage. Yeah. Um, and, and it's almost like you're elevating the status of this used clothing to, you mm-hmm. know, like a vintage, like a fine wine yeah. or something <laughs> like that. So before we sign off, this has been a wonderful chat. Uh, Do you want to speak about your work with the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator in conjunction with Pratt Institute? Yes. So the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator was launched in 2014 as a response to 
meeting with designers who just couldn't find a place to produce small runs of their collections. Mm -hmm. Um, And so oftentimes they were working in their small studios or studio apartments and trying to make samples themselves. Um, And they were able to find factories here locally that could produce maybe 100 units. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want to produce 100 units. They wanted to produce maybe 50 units at an affordable price. And so that was our response. We've now evolved into uh, a community of independent designers who we mentor. So we Mm -hmm. offer them mentorship on uh, sustainability, sales, marketing, and finances, which are the key touch points for building and developing a brand. Um, we also offer them access to affordable manufacturing and mm-hmm. prototyping. But more importantly than that, we're trying to educate designers on how to be better manufacturers and how to understand the whole process. And so we offer that as a consultation service for anyone who wants to come visit us. And then for our in-house designers who are part of the program, they get to see that day to day. And the materials library is equally important because it's giving them access to better materials that are made ethically and responsibly. And then our new venture is how to incorporate intelligent and responsible technology into wearables because we're seeing the future of wearability being with technology embedded into our clothes. And we want to make sure that that's being done responsibly. When we start to talk about the impact of dyes and manufacturing, it's one thing. But then as soon as we start to add technology to our clothes, which is currently a $19 billion business. Wow. Wow. um, And it's still in its infancy stages. And it's still in very infant stages. Um, When we start to think about how 20% of our clothing will be connected to the internet in the next 20 years, which is shocking to me being a Luddite, and I can't even (laughs) imagine that, Um, but it's a reality. And so we want to make sure at the BFDA that that's being done responsibly and that the technology is not only just added to our wearables, but Mm -hmm. is done in a way that improves life. Um, and is done environmentally in an environmentally friendly way. And so we're really posing very difficult, very challenging questions, but we're at the forefront of sustainability and technology being married. Historically, they didn't get along very well, and we want to bridge that gap. Um, And so that's what the BFDA is doing, and I'm really proud to be a part of that. And where can people find you? So I guess the easiest place would be on my website, which is study-ny.com or the BK Accelerator website, which is bkaccelerator.com. I'm also on Instagram at studyny. We, Tara, cannot thank you enough for joining us today. This has been a blast, and I and I, I hope that people have learned a lot. I certainly um, have. <laughs> I, hopefully, we've planted some seeds for our listeners to think about, you know, next time they're tempted, perhaps, to buy mm. fast fashion. And please, listeners, do not throw your clothes in the trash. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, consider that donating them to a charity. Mm. Um, many, many communities out there actually have textile recycling programs mm-hmm. where you can drop off your items so that the fibers can be broken down and turned into different types of products. Um, If you happen to uh, live in New York City, you can drop off any of your unwanted textiles at one of the 26 green market farmers markets that are all across all five boroughs. And Tara, just so you know, I jokingly wanted to call this episode Tara St. James saves the world. Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I can't decide if that's a better comic book title or <laughs> title for my biography. Next project? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That does it for us this week. We hope you had a moment to ask yourself, dress listeners, where did my clothing come from next time you get dressed? 
And remember, you can find images to accompany each week's episode on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget about our brand new merch store where you can get dressed approved t-shirts, mugs, <laughs> notebooks, stickers, and super cute tote bags. Just go to www.tpublic.com forward slash dress. And last but not least, thank you again to Tara St. James and also our producers at How Stuff Works, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram. Catch you next week. This episode of Dressed was recorded at Mouth Media Network Studio in New York, powered by Sennheiser. Hey.